Welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates forgotten and, well, sometimes quite infamous women who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. This show is recorded in front of a delightful audience in Berlin, and on the podcast, we bring you a selection of talks from these events. This episode is the first part of a special series we're calling Frauen to mark the 100th anniversary of the publication of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus, we're presenting the stories of four women connected in some way to that iconic gothic book, which is also considered the first science fiction novel. So, to our creation. In the short series, you'll also get to hear a bit of Dead Lady Show co-founders Katie Darbyshire and Florian Dowsens in their element introducing the show live on stage at Akud in Berlin. And they'll be joining me again in the last episode of this miniseries for a chat to wrap things up. Now, these four episodes are a bit interrelated, well, literally, in a way, so it might be best to listen to at least the first couple in order. Again, this is number one. This series is coordinated with a Bard College Berlin project on Frankenstein, and there were lots of students and faculty in our audience. To kick things off, Katie's going to tell us about Mary Shelley's mother, Mary Wollstonecraft. And here's Florian introducing Katie at our live show. Katie is the co-founder of The Dead Lady Show. She is a wonderful and world-famous translator. Um, she is a rigorous... Um, emancipator of German literature in the English-speaking world. Um, she has won stunning awards, had been nominated for more stunning ones, and uh, been on juries for various things. Her next book, it, like, when is your next one coming out? Now. Now. Her next book is coming out now. Uh, you're going to be here for it. <laughs> which which book is it? Well, there's two. There's, there's the, the one about the dead lady. Uh, and Lister, it's called Gentleman Jack, and uh, we already have a podcast. Soon to be a TV show. Yep, yep. And uh, then there's another one called Seasonal Associate, which is coming out like in about two weeks. Um, that's the book you should get everybody for Christmas because it's about uh, it's by Heike Geisler, who worked at an Amazon warehouse uh, and wrote a book about it. Don't buy it on Amazon, clearly. <laughs> um, everybody should read it. It's great. Uh, take it away, Katie. Okay, so I'm going to tell you about Mary Wollstonecraft, proto-feminist and mother of Mary Shelley, uh, who lived from 1759 to 1797. Here you can see her signature, yours affectionately, Mary Wollstonecraft. And I'm going to start off with a quote which I have abridged on the screen. She wrote, Mr. Johnson assures me that if I exert my talents in writing, I may support myself in a comfortable way. I am then going to be the first of a new genus. This project has long floated in my mind. You know I am not born to tread in the beaten track. The peculiar bent of my nature pushes me on. And she wrote that in 1787 to her sister Everina when she decided to make her own living as a writer. And she was supported by her friend, uh, the radical publisher, here he is, Joseph Johnson, 
He's got those lovely little tight curls on the side. I wish I could do that. Yeah, so Joseph Johnson uh, was famous for giving these, these um, quite intellectual dinners where he'd invite people, give them plain food, and they would just have a lot of discussions. Very clever people, lots of different thinkers, and, and Mary learned a lot from all those people gathered around his table. And she did, in fact, manage to make a living from her translations, reviews, and books. And she was indeed, as we'll learn, of a peculiar bent, rarely doing things the way society expected. She did, in fact, become one of the first of a new genus of feminist philosophers. She was born, though, in Spitalfields in London in 1759. Here's a print from that year showing a London newspaper seller. Mary Wollstonecraft's father frittered away her grandfather's money, which had been made out of silk manufacturing in Spitalfields, and moved the family around England, basically on the run from various debts that he worked up. Um, he tried and failed at gentleman farming. He gambled, drank, beat his wife and children. And when Mary's 15, the family moved to Hoxton, which is super cool now, but uh, in 1775 was at the very top of the map, as you can see, uh, outside of London. It was um, a hotbed of nonconformist thinkers who'd been banned from Oxford and Cambridge, and a lot of thinking was going on there. Mary, 15-year-old uh, Mary, uh, fit right in. She'd attended a school in Yorkshire, but she didn't learn much there beyond needlework. She did learn about science from her friend's father, and she found another teacher figure in Hoxton, uh, a neighbour called Reverend Clare, who got her started on philosophy. I think 15 is a good age for that. And it was through him that she met her greatest friend, 18-year-old Fanny Blood, who already was earning her own living as a nature painter. She had to because her father was also an alcoholic and uh, didn't work, so she was feeding and caring for her large family. Mary wanted to leave her unhappy family and live with Fanny, and she did everything she could to make that happen. So the first job that she got pretty much against her mother's will was uh, when she was 19, and she became a companion to a widow in Bath, which was a lonely job, but it paid and gave her insights into fashionable society, watching on from the margins. She had to go back after a couple of years to care for her sick mother until she died. That was in 1782. And then she had no income. Her father uh, remarried very swiftly, and Mary moved in with the Bloods. But she had to do something to earn her keep. So having rescued her sister Eliza from a probably abusive husband, Mary made a radical new start. A benefactor helped her to open a school for girls, and she shared a house with her sisters Eliza and Everina, and of course with Fanny in Newington Green, which is another era, area full of dissenters just outside of London. And with, this is where she met the publisher Johnson. So sadly though, Fanny was not terribly well. She had consumption, so she ended up accepting an offer of marriage from her prevaricating fiancé in Lisbon, in Portugal. Moved to Portugal, was very soon pregnant, and uh, with her delicate con constitution, that really worried Mary, enough so that she made the long trip over, a long ship journey, uh, and was there in time for the baby's birth, but Fanny and the baby died very soon after that, and Mary was heartbroken. So she was away, and the school failed in her absence. But based on that, her teaching experience, Mary wrote 
this book, Thoughts on the Education of Daughters, with reflections on female conduct in the more important duties of life, which was the beginning of, of her occupation with uh, education, which never really ended. She did need a job, though, and she got one as a governess for several of the 12 aristocratic Kingsborough children at the family's castle in Ireland. Now, there aren't, I couldn't find any pictures of Lady Caroline Kingsborough, her boss, but we do know from what Mary wrote that she preferred her dogs to her children and she spent a lot of time beautifying herself. So here's a picture of another lady with a lap dog in the 1780s, which I found uh, on the uh, Pinterest list 33 best lap dogs of the 18th century. <laughs> Now, you can see she's got this ridiculous wig on and um, her face is probably powdered with lead. She has, uh, she's got a flouncy pastel outfit on and a happy, a small but happy dog. You can see that dogs have been smiling down the centuries. Now, I imagine Mary Wollstonecraft as a governess to be a bit like a, a strict but caring Mary Poppins, except she was writing a novel in her free time. And she called it Mary, a fiction. <laughs> and it was about a self-taught, opinionated woman who was a genius. <laughs> the real Mary, though, got the sack and moved back to London in 187, no, 1787, decided to make her living through writing, which brings us right back to that quote from the beginning. And that's what she did. So here is a painting of Mary by John Opie uh, from 1790 or 91. It's on display in the Tate Gallery, and the label next to it says, the pioneering feminist Mary Wollstonecraft is shown as though distracted momentarily from her studies. The somber colors of her costume and the cloistered darkened setting convey a sense of seriousness and dedication. And she looks you'll notice, very different to the lapdog lady we just saw. So this was about the time she was working on her big hit, A Vindication of the Rights of Women, with strictures on political and moral subjects. This particular photo is of the 1792 American edition, and this handwriting on the left is uh, an inscription by the women's rights activist Susan B. Anthony. In the book, Mary devotes a lot of space to complaining about other women's behavior in the upper and middle classes. Other women couldn't read and weren't part of her audience, although she does address them briefly, but they wouldn't have been able to read the book. The last chapter, for instance, uh, entitled Some Instances of the Folly Which the Ignorance of Women Generates with Concluding Reflections on the Moral Improvement that a Revolution in Female Manners Might Naturally Be Expected to Produce, <sighs> scolds women for taking an interest in horoscopes and fortune-telling, for reading novels, although she thought that was better than not reading at all, for taking too much interest in clothes, and for bad parenting because they focus their attentions on their husbands. But, she tells us, this is because women are not educated properly. Women aren't by nature stupid and vain. They just never learn how not to be. Depending on men means their only power is gained through beauty, which fades 
when they should instead be working on their reason and understanding and virtue. Perhaps it was an early and, and limited version of gender as a social construct, I'm not quite sure. She does give us a few examples of a few women who, from having received a masculine education, have acquired courage and resolution, which means we now get to play Guess the Mary Wollstonecraft Dead Ladies. Anyone? Mystery Dead Ladies. Nobody recognizes anybody. It's not. Nobody reads Greek? <laughs> it's Sappho, guys. Anyway, so it's Sappho on the left. Um, top centre is, is Catherine Macaulay, who was a, a historian who Mary admired a lot. You don't recognise the woman on the top right? She's jolly. She, that's jolly old Catherine the Great, okay. who was the Empress of Russia at the time, having deposed her husband. So this person I don't expect you to know, but I'm fascinated. Mary refers to her as, as Madame Dion. And she was a French soldier and spy who lived as a man for 49 years and a woman for the subsequent 33. So the book, though, had a radical content. All children, Mary wrote, should be educated together from all classes, boys and girls learning the same things, which is, still doesn't really happen in the UK. Women should be allowed to vote, as should the lower classes, and middle-class women should be allowed to work if they want to. How many women thus waste life away the prey of discontent, she wrote, who might have practiced as physicians, regulated a farm, managed a shop, and stood erect, supported by their own industry, instead of hanging their heads, surcharged with the dew of sensibility. It's a fascinating book, um, full of quotes and allusions. You can see how well-read she was by that point. It was written very quickly. It does meander a little bit. So, and also, it's in the language of the time. So if you want to read it, which I do recommend, do get an annotated edition. Uh, <laughs> I really benefited from this one, edited by Janet Todd, Oxford World's Classics. So the book was very well-reviewed at the time. It was a bit of a hit. But in her personal life, Mary was less successful. She had a major crush on this Swiss writer and painter, Henry Fuseli, who unfortunately had just got married to his model, Sophia Rawlins. Now here she is in a painting that he did. As you can see, she has two very prominent characteristics. Um, um, and she's very, you know, she's a voluptuous and colourful woman. Again, rather different to the studious Mary in her grey outfit. Um, Mary suggested to them that they should all live together in a threesome, but Sophia wasn't into it. <laughs> and the whole situation was a bit of a nightmare, which is the title of one of Fuseli's most famous paintings. <laughs> Segway. Um, Fuseli is not the hero of this story. He said, I hate clever women. They are only troublesome. So Mary went to Paris to write about the French Revolution instead on her own in December in 1792, which was bad timing because not long after she arrived, they started executing the factions she sided with, the Girondists. And then England declared war on France, so she was in extra danger. But she just met an American diplomat and businessman, Gilbert Imlay. And here's his Twitter profile. (laughs) 
I think that pipe is, is photoshopped on. It was a passionate romance, as evidenced by many loving letters, and Imlay registered Mary as his wife, although he didn't actually marry her because neither of them are into marriage. But that gave her some security, some protection. Um, they moved in together, but he traveled a lot for his work. And Mary wrote to him in November 1793 that she was pregnant. She was very happy, but Imlay kept on traveling. Their baby, Fanny Imlay, was born in La Havre on the 14th of May, 1794, uh, at which point Mary had just finished writing this book, like a month before she gave birth, an historical and moral view of the origin and progress of the French Revolution. Mary really enjoyed motherhood. She breastfed against the fashion. Gilbert, though, was less enthusiastic, let's say, about the constrictions of family life, and he moved to London, leaving the mother and baby behind to oversee his business. Eventually, Mary and Fanny followed on, by which point Gilbert was strangely distant and said he wanted variety and amusement, <laughs> which put Mary into a bit of a depression, or it could have been um, postpartum as well. She made a suicide attempt. Gilbert found her and came up with a plan to cheer her up by sending her and the baby with the nurse to Scandinavia. <laughs> Wait. To track down a missing ship holding his dodgy cargo of smuggled silver platters. <laughs> the result, eventual result anyway, was this book, Letters written during a short residence in Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. <laughs> so this was an edited version of, of Mary's real letters, combining travelogue, nature writing, her own reactions to that beautiful nature she saw in Scandinavia, the grief over her abandonment by her partner, her philosophical and political thoughts. It was a new way to write, and it was very influential, especially for the romantic poets. I don't know if we're going to come to that. Maybe later. Right, her daughter read a lot of her work, including this. Read, probably she read all of it. Hey? Um, but working on the book really refined Mary's ideas and improved her writing skills. She did track down the ship's captain, but he wouldn't give the silver back. Back in London, Gilbert had ended their relationship by letter to Gothenburg, which is, I think, the equivalent of like a text message, right? It's over. And moved in with another woman. After a confrontation, Mary decided to kill herself, threw herself into the Thames, but was rescued by canny fishermen. And that was that. It was over with Gilbert. She went back to writing and earning her own keep. Now, this book really impressed this man, William Godwin. Ooh. It's got that beautiful English skin like me. <laughs> uh, and Florian was going to dress up all, rom all kind of romantic, but not, none of us had any frilly shirts. But William Godwin, as you can see, did have a lovely frilly shirt. He had met Mary before, but once he read her letters from Sweden, Norway, and Denmark, he wrote... If ever there was a book calculated to make a man fall in love with his author, this appears to me to be the book. <laughs> and after a while, they did indeed become lovers. 
Mary started it off by paying him a visit out of the blue, which was not the done thing. But then she never did the done thing. She was probably his first lover, and he was 41 at the time. He was a radical writer, and he wanted a non-violent overthrow of all existing political, social, and religious institutions. <laughs> he was an atheist and an anarchist. <sighs> so here's Mary, painted by the, that same painter, John Opie, at around that time. Look how happy she was. She's got color in her cheeks now, luminous, really glowing and happy. And surprise, she fell pregnant again. And so this time, she and Godwin got married. Of course, everybody took the mickey out of them because they'd both been very vocal about their uh, uh, criticism of marriage. But of course, it wasn't a conventional marriage. They lived next door to each other. They had two adjoining houses, and they sent notes via servants. <laughs> Are you ready for the crying part? This is Mary's last note. It says... Mrs. Blenkinsop tells me that I am in the most natural state and can promise me a safe delivery, but that I must have a little patience. Uh, Mrs. Blenkinsop was the midwife, and uh, William and Mary's daughter, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, was born on the next day. You can say at the top it says 3 o'clock, August the 30th, 1797. Mary, though, died 10 days later of an infection. Mary Wollstonecraft loved being a mother. In a later novel, uh, Godwin included this passage. It's very him, I think it's very sweet though. Never shall I forget the interview between us immediately subsequent to her first parturition, so her first giving birth, the effusion with which we met each other after all danger seemed to have subsided. The kindness which animated us, increased as it was by the ideas of peril and suffering, the sacred sensation with which the mother presented the infant to her husband, or the complacency with which we read in each other's eyes a common sentiment of melting tenderness and inviolable attachment. Mary's reputation suffered rather after her death when Godwin wrote openly about her life with good intentions, but it was all a little bit too off the beaten track for many readers at the time. But we haven't forgotten her. This artist here, Maggie Hambling, is working as we speak on the first memorial sculpture to celebrate Mary Wollstonecraft back on Newington Green where she first uh, lived that independent life. The artist says, I hope the piece will act as a metaphor for the challenges women continue to face as we confront the world. And here's what it will look like. It is apparently an every woman emerging from organic matter. And it has the quote on the plinth, I do not wish women to have power over men, but over themselves, from the vindication, of course. I like to imagine how Mary's life would have continued had it not been cut short. Now, English society was extremely restrictive at the time, especially after the French Revolution. So I imagine Mary and William moving abroad with their two daughters, Fanny and Mary, and living a freer life. Perhaps, in fact, like that of Mary's former pupil, Margaret King, who, you won't believe it, it was the daughter of the laptop, laptop, lap. Oh, I knew this was going to happen. 
So you won't believe it, but Margaret King was the daughter of the lapdog lady. <laughs> and fashions have changed, obviously, because she's got this lovely crenellated hood <laughs> and red shawl combination. In fact, it's quite modern. I would wear the shawl. She, yes, she married young to escape her awful mother, uh, but then became an Irish Republican, fell in love with another man, had to leave her seven children behind with her first husband, studied medicine in Jena, which required her to cross-dress as a man, and settled in Italy, where she and her new husband led radical lives with their daughters, they had two more daughters, and even looked after Mary Shelley and her friends for a little while. Here comes Mary's grave. I think we'll come back to that uh, when we hear all about Mary Shelley. So I like to think that Mary Wollstonecraft would have become our first sex-positive feminist. And she would have given us the promised sequel to A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. It would have embraced her improved writing skills and it would have included revolutionary ideas because she would have discussed it all with Godwin. Godwin would have taken on the feminist cause. She would have taken on the atheist cause. It would have been wonderful. <laughs> Nobody, bizarrely, has made a biopic of Mary Wollstonecraft's life. But that's okay, because I would rather have a story ending the way I want it to. Thank you for listening. Katie Darwisher on Mary Wollstonecraft. You can see some pictures of Mary and find out more about her writing on our website, deadladyshow.com. Be sure to listen to the rest of our Frankenfrauen series. Coming up, we have Mary Shelley herself, Ada Lovelace, the daughter of Lord Byron and a pioneering computer programmer, and Elsa Lanchester, iconoclastic star of stage and screen, perhaps best known for her role as the Bride of Frankenstein. Our theme song is Little Lily Swing by Tritachion, which you can find on SoundCloud along with all episodes of the Dead Lady Show podcast. Follow us at Dead Lady Show or drop us a line to info at deadladyshow.com. Thanks to Katie and Florian and to all of you for joining us. I'm Susan Stone, perhaps best known for her role as the Bride of Frankenstein. <coughs> <laughs> as the bride of Frankenstein. That's Frankenstein. <laughs>